curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Hello. Know that Rodriguez guy, the musician? Um, had a huge fan base in South Africa. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't. Uh, he was working as a demolition contractor in Detroit, and yet he was just massively famous uh, overseas in this a couple of enclaves. Anyway, it's a fabulous story, and this music is just charming as all hell, I think. It has this um, magic of sounding familiar, even as though, even if you may not have heard it before. If you know what I mean. Okay, here's some Rodriguez news. Uh, he's almost sold out, so I'm telling you. Uh, next February, we've got uh, Sisto Rodriguez's support. Um, it's a one-show-only thing at the Villa Maria Winery in Auckland, February 2019. Tickets are on sale. There are a few left. I thought I should tell you. Uh, Radio Live's morning talk. Uh, you can win double passes there. 9am to noon weekdays uh, be listening for how to enter but you can go to Ticket Tech anyway and grab your tickets just saying because they are selling out quickly here's a neat example one of the lesser played tunes from Rodriguez Crucify Your Mind why not we'll have a bit of Sisto Rodriguez Was it a huntsman or a player that made you pay the cost that now assumes relaxed positions and prostitutes your loss Were you tortured by your own thirst In those pleasures that you seek That made you Tom the curious That makes you James the weak And you claim you got something going Something you call unique But I've seen yourself pity showing As the tears roll down your cheeks Soon you know I'll leave you And I'll never look behind Cause I was born for the purpose that crucifies your mind So can't convince your mirror as you've always done before Giving substance to shadows, giving substance evermore And you assume you got something to offer Secret shiny in you But how much of you is repetition That you didn't whisper to him too Sisto Rodriguez playing February Villa Maria, uh, February 2019 Villa Maria Winery. What's it? Uh, tickets selling out fast. That's what I just say. Um, isn't he lovely? I think so anyway. Next up, freshwater fishers, how they're doing in New Zealand. Plain as that. New report out from Doc. Life, the universe, and everything in between. 
Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. A scientific report came out uh, just this week. Oh, it doesn't matter if it was last week. Very recently. It's the latest one on the freshwater fishes of New Zealand. Their conservation status. We're talking range, numbers, how they're doing. And these large reports, when you join the dots, gives us trends and how to approach these things. For a bit of a 101 on this damn comprehensive report, Department of Conservation's Nicholas Dunn, and you're the science advisor for Freshwater. Thanks for being with us, Nicholas. Yes, so the report came out, and it's one of a series of reports that the department leads for the New Zealand government. It's the first report for freshwater fish since 2013. To give people a little bit of idea of what we're looking at before we go into trends and statuses, how many native species do we have, and how many of those are only found here? Ah, so we recognise 75 living species and one extinct species. Of the 75, there's 54 which are indigenous fish, the remaining fish are introduced species. But of the indigenous species, 72% are indigenous and 28% are introduced. Of the indigenous species, 84 are considered endemic, so only found in New Zealand. That value is higher than for birds, plants and invertebrates. Right. Uh, Maybe one reason is they can't swim outside of fresh water. Does that mean that freshwater fishes are more likely to be a real Gondwanan remnant than most other things? This is a, a quite an interesting biogeographic question of whether our fishes are of Gondwanian origins. And there's various views on this. One is that during the Oligocene, the whole landmass was submerged. Yeah. Uh, another yeah. point of view is that there were remnant islands present on the New Zealand landmass. But it's considered that the modern taxa arrived here through dispersal and superimposed themselves on any residual Gondwanian biota. They've been here all along, or how would they come in otherwise? They've dispersed uh, from other land masses that were likely to be part of Gondwana. How would they get here across salt water? We have a component of our freshwater fishes which are migratory, which means that they can move between the freshwater and marine environments as part of their life cycle. And following invasion of the landmass, there's been a loss of that ability to migrate to the ocean. Okay. And there's been subsequent speciation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At least it's water. Yes. <laughs> Salty. <laughs> Yep. All right, and this research study, it's, it covers every single species we know of, and I don't know if there are any missed out. Or maybe some species might be divided up into two in the future. I don't know. But what are the salient points, significant changes or trends from this particular report? This is it's like a census. It is, it is. And um, overall, there's been few changes since the last report, but there are some significant changes, and notably two species have worsened in their threat status, but three have actually improved their status. So they've moved from a higher category to a lower category, so they've become less 
threatened with extinction. Three out of two ain't, uh, ain't bad, as Meatloaf almost said. <laughs> no, but we could do better with continued conservation management. That's the goal, that species will move from higher categories to lower categories, meaning they move away from the brink of extinction. What's improved? What, what species have improved? And if you can use like common names, if they have them. Well, one of the species is the Pomahaka galaxis, so it's only found in the Pomahaka catchment in the Calutha River system. Oh. It's moved from what we termed nationally critical down to nationally vulnerable, not necessarily because of any conservation actions, but because of improved knowledge of its distribution. Similarly, with the Redfin bully, that has moved from what we called a naturally uncommon category to a, a not threatened. So we have a better confidence that its status has improved. But probably the most significant change has been the improvement of uh, one species, the lowland longjaw galaxis in the Waitaki River catchment. Because of conservation management in the form of uh, barriers to stop uh, predatory trout, it's um, moved away from the brink of extinction and continued work in that area will hopefully see the uh, long-term persistence of that species. Can you give us a little brief in a nutshell what happened to the extinct one, the grayling I think it is? Yeah, so the grayling is a species which hasn't been recorded since probably sometime between the 30s and the 50s. It was previously uh, a very abundant species, but maybe overfishing, maybe a disease led to its decline, and it hasn't been recorded for, yeah, since 80 years or so. Okay, not likely to be a takahe found again? Some of us still hold out hope that it could be hiding away somewhere. But, yeah, it's probably a long shot. Okay. It, it, its habitat was a lowland rivers, and it was, interestingly, it was an algivore. So it ate algae, and it's one of the only uh, freshwater fish in New Zealand that fed on algae. What was its uh, range? To be honest, I'm not exactly sure, but oh, it was it wasn't fairly just like, widespread. Okay, fairly widespread, not like one of those weird ones that's in one place. No, it was it was quite well dispersed around the um, both main islands, being a migratory species. What knocked it off? If it is knocked off, we're not sure. We're not sure uh, on that. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about white bait because they're a native fish. How many of them are threatened, vulnerable? We don't round up saddlebacks and put them in a pie. <laughs> no, that's right. There's been no change to the status of any of the white bait species between the 2013 and um, the 2017 assessments. Um, we still have the five species that make up the white bait catch, the most common being the inanga and that is uh, at risk declining. The short-jaw kokapoo is the most threatened of the whitebait, and it's still nationally vulnerable, mainly because it has a more restricted distribution than the other species. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, it's not found on the Chatham Islands, whereas the other species are. The giant kokapoo and kawaro, they're still at risk declining, and the banded kokapoo, which is a very widespread species, is still considered not threatened under the categories. Okay, well, here we are, vulnerable, threatened.
Um, it's felt as though it's a national cultural right. But so was uh, Toira. I remember going to Bailey's Beach every season, digging them up. We don't do that anymore. Can we sustain white bait fishing? I can hear them screaming now at me, but good God. Can we keep catching them while they're in this vulnerable or endangered category? That's not really my area of expertise, but one of my colleagues is working on white bait reform. So that area of work is is being addressed but yeah sorry i'm not i'm not able to answer those types of questions okay no worries let's talk about some real weird ones these little galaxias that it's small little fish you can almost see through them and that it is what makes up your white bait as well but some of these species seem to only hang out in these tiny little ranges these certain areas alpine central otago marlborough the tarndale bully how did they get there, and why are they just in these tiny little places? Yeah, the non-migratory species, they do present some rather interesting cases, and they actually make up the majority of the threatened species. About 80% of them are non-migratory. You talk about the Tarndale bully, that, that one's interesting. It, a combination of glacial activity and uplift along fault lines, essentially landlocked. A migratory species, basically now captured in only a handful of tarns in a very isolated area. Some of the other species, such as the Nevis Galaxis, the Nevis Valley is surrounded by glacial activity, yet the Nevis itself didn't have a glacier in it. And so there's these little pockets of isolated refugia where fish have been able to hang on during the glacial periods. Some of the others, they're more restricted. Say the Alpine Galaxis is restricted to grey wacky catchments. Mm. So it's only in particular catchments within Canterbury, parts of Otago and parts of Southland. Whereas some of the other species have more wider habitat preferences or can utilise different habitats so it can occur in, in, a, in a wider range. With any species that is range restricted like that, they must be very vulnerable to any changes that might be happening inadvertent or activity around them because they can't go anywhere. That's right. Once they're gone out of a catchment, they're gone. They don't have the ability to recolonise naturally through the ocean or particularly now with human influences on almost all the known fish habitat. The recolonisation pathways are probably not present anymore either. So yes, they are quite prone to particularly agricultural activities which can modify or remove their habitat and particularly water abstraction is a major pressure on many of those species. Okay, well I hope the Department of Conservation isn't making a secret about this otherwise someone might accidentally bugger it all up. Yeah, and that that is one of the main concerns that the more people know about these species and how unique they are, they they could well go and develop habitat. It's especially concerned because a lot of this habitat is on private land, which the department doesn't have a direct ability to control activities on. And so we advocate through regional and district plans uh, for habitat protection. And there's also some amendments to the Conservation Acts in process which are intending to strengthen protection for freshwater fish. 
uh, any of these places, luckily, with Landcorp, because they've signed this thing with Forest and Bird and they seem serious about it? Um, particularly where Landcorp has a large number of farms, such as in Southland, a lot of the habitats are on Landcorp farms, yes. Yeah, the potential to do more work on Landcorp farms should be uh, explored further. Uh, we have two species of eel, right? Everyone thinks, oh, well, there's an eel, there's a small one, there's a big one, small one will grow into a big one. They're distinct. And there's the really interesting thing about the life cycle of the huge big eel that makes its conservation status either hard to measure or underappreciated. Can you give us a potted life cycle and why, why that's the case? I'll just point out we actually recognise three species of eel Pardon in New me. Zealand. I'll go to the um, back of the class. <laughs> no, we've got some Australian longfin eels, which we consider to be colonisers. The young get swept towards New Zealand rather than towards Australia. Their spawning grounds are somewhere in the region between Fiji and Tonga, we think. So ocean currents being as they are, the, the young of the Australian longfin eel sometimes uh, comes into New Zealand waters and uh, into our rivers, particularly the Waikato and the north of the North Island. But the big one? With a, yeah, with our longfin eel, the New Zealand longfin eel, it's an endemic species, so it's only found here. Um, our shortfin eel is also found in Australia. Um, and it both or all three species have similar spawning grounds, but the long fin eel has a much longer lifespan than the short fin. The average female age for a long fin eel is about 40 years. Because of that extended period in the fresh water, it's quite vulnerable to a number of pressures and habitat modifications or impeded passage through rivers to habitat. Yeah, and if you see a big one, uh, I understand they haven't bred yet. No, that's right. The long finial and the short finial only breed once at the end of their life. So they are spawned in the ocean. They travel to New Zealand as very small eels. They live their life in the fresh water, and then when they mature or uh, become sexually mature, they then migrate back to those spawning grounds in the in the Pacific Ocean. So, yes, they're virgins when they leave New Zealand. Yep. Yeah, and because almost anyone you'd ask, they see a huge big eel, they think, oh, that's fine. We'll yoink that out because it's big, it's old, it's done all its breeding, it's done none. And we have to wait 40 years to hear the echo of that impact. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the long finial is a particular concern. While we have good information on the areas which are commercially fished, they're only a small proportion of the total number of catchments in New Zealand. And we don't have a good handle on the status of those eels in other areas of New Zealand, nor on the, the cultural catch either. Right. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's of concern. All right. Almost every natural, especially the endemic and indigenous species that are in New Zealand, of anything, plant or animal, we've got weeds and pests. What are the buggers you'd like to get rid of that are damaging the introduced species? What are the damaging introduced species of freshwater animals in New Zealand? Uh, probably the one most known is the salmonids, which covers the trouts, the salmons and the chars. 
There's also other species, predominantly in the North Island, the pest fishes, something like uh, gambusia and uh, koi carp, those sorts of species, which can you know modify the habitat or directly influence the fish population themselves. But yeah, the the trout in particular, probably the one of the major threats to our non-migratory species. They don't coexist well with our native fishes. They both predate on them and outcompete them. They don't last long together. Okay. Have we got programs, approaches to get rid of the buggers? Uh, our main tool at the moment is to install built barriers in streams okay. with the high-value populations of non-migratory fish. We, we've also trialled the use of a piscicide, rotenone, uh, to remove the trout. And it just gets the trout? No, it, it, it kills all species of fish. It affects their oxygen uptake across their gills. During a, one of those types of operations, you try and fish out as many of your important fish oh. and then any remaining fish subject to that right. piscicide. Yep. And once it's cleared, they can go back in? Yeah, that, right. that ideally is how it should be, yep. For some of these really rare ones that are ridiculously range-restricted, you've basically got a species in a puddle. Why don't we translocate them like we do birds? Can we do that, breed them in captivity? We can do those, but I would start by protecting their habitat first. Translocations can be done, but they should be seen as a last resort. They're still largely experimental, and of the ones that have been done, the degree of success isn't always as high as uh, anticipated. Okay. It's actually very hard to replicate the habitats of these species. And to be fair, we don't have a good understanding of the habitat requirements or biological requirements of some of these species. And so to try and replicate those in new habitats is actually quite tricky. We can breed them in captivity, but again, the migratory species are a bit harder because they have to shift between freshwater and saltwater to complete their, their life cycle. But we have had quite a bit of success with the non-migratory species, such as Canterbury mudfish and Gollum galaxis, which have, it's been demonstrated that those species can be bred in captivity. But again, it's quite an experimental uh, operation and very time-consuming, so it's it's not something to be undertaken lightly. Okay, well, overall, this latest report, first since 2013, good news that uh, two or three have gone up, but some have gone down, but pretty much it's steady as she goes other than that? It is, it is, yep. But what's important to keep in mind, although they haven't changed in their, their status, their trend and predominantly downwards trends are continuing can do better. Department of Conservation's Nicholas Dunn, Science Advisor for Freshwater Carry On. Thank you very much for expanding on this report and fascinating life stories and evolution of these things, how on earth they got there. Okay, Nicholas, thank you. You're tuned in in. to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Well, one of the great things about Forest and Bird is that a question that was left unanswered, and we, uh, I think, can understand why. The Department of Conservation's Nicholas Dunn talking about uh, of our, the freshwater fishes report that came out. 
um, just about the regulations and protocols that are best for whitebait, which are a native fish for New Zealand. Uh, a bit of a no comment there. Um, not his department to comment on. Um, this is why Forrest and Bird is here. <laughs> so uh, I've managed to tether um, Annabeth Cohen, freshwater conservation advocate uh, from Forrest and Bird, uh, to a telephone line to give us Forrest and Bird's position on this very idea of white baiting. As I mentioned uh, with Nicholas, um, we don't round up saddlebacks and put them in pies. Are we doing the same sort of thing? Annabeth, thanks for being with us. Hey, Graham. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's just reiterate, because it's been a few minutes uh, to put people back in the picture, and they may have just tuned in. Um, the, the species of whitebait, um, what are they, just briefly, before we get into the threatened and declining ones? Sure. Whitebait, they are five of the juvenile of the galaxid fish. So I just mentioned galaxid because that family are named after a galaxy in the sense that their skin sparkles like a galaxy. And I just think that's a really special thing. Um, these white bait are special galaxid because they actually migrate from fresh to salt water back to fresh water. That's part of their life cycle. But yeah, the white bait, they're made up of five different fish species. When they grow up, what do they do? What do they look like? Oh, they range in sizes, um, but as I said, they've got the sparkly skin, um, and they're, they're, I find them really quite beautiful. The inanga is the smallest one, so um, yeah, I think that's about 10 centimeters, and then they range up to the giant kokopo, which can get up to, you know, 50 centimeters. So that's, that's the largest galaxid in the world. And if you spot a freshwater, one in the freshwater in New Zealand, uh, how does it end up at sea? Uh, well, they, like I said, um, they, they go out to salt water um, at least once a year. And when that's when part... they're grown up. Well, yeah, that's right. So, the, so, the, so you get the, the big spring tide. Now, that's a tide that happens after a full moon. It's the highest, uh, highest tide in the month, and, um, and they'll do that usually in autumn. And they head out um, to lay their eggs. Um, and they lay those eggs, and those eggs get fertilized. Um, so the females lay the eggs, the males fertilize the eggs, um, and Never. once that <laughs> and once that tide recedes, um, the eggs are then exposed for a little bit, but they're protected. Hopefully, they're protected um, by the native plantings, you know, on the riparian on the river banks. Okay. Um, and then when the next big tide comes in, carries those eggs right out to sea. Um, now this is the inanga, so the the life cycles vary a little bit among the five different species, but um, the eggs. They, they get carried out to sea, that's where they hatch, and, and those fish stay out there and they feed during the winter. And then when the spring comes around, which is when the whitebait season um, occurs, the fish all migrate back into the fresh water so that they can go upstream and then they can feed and grow up and, and come back to lay their eggs again in the autumn. So um, when you know we're out fishing during whitebait season that actually is there because that's when the fish are coming back into the fresh water in in droves um to okay. come up okay so that's not for the fish advantage that's for the human advantage and yoinking them out yeah that's right so that's when you can get them um the big shoals is when they come up in the spring <laughs> okay um there are I've heard they're capable of amazing feats too. They can just, you know, out of the water, they can climb up all sorts of things. 
Yeah, there are uh, two of the the, um, the the migratory galaxa. They are great climbers. So, for example, the um, Coaro, that's my favorite, because they can climb quite far up. Um, so they you can find them up to 1,300 meters above sea level. Um, they'll they'll go 400 meters in inland. Um, so it's yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, far up. Okay, now it's not fresh news. This has been the status, I think, of these fish for a bit. Three of the white bait species at risk declining, and one is threatened. Uh, okay, first of all, what do these definitions mean? Well, it means they're in trouble, just to give you the shorthand. So, you know, if you are an animal and you are on this list, uh, you're not doing well. And so scientists, they look and to see what the population sizes are, uh, what's the distribution around the country, um, what's the maturity of the, the range of animals that you find. And um, if, if it seems like those things, those criteria are not looking good, then they might find themselves ranked on this on this scale. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you're either not threatened or you're threatened, and it's sort of the closer you get to extinction is how you sort of move up the scale, and it's, uh, yeah, it's not pretty. So four out of five of our white bait, um, these migratory galaxids, they are at risk or threatened, so they're not doing well. Four out of five. Now, is it just good luck? Is this the case that the one that isn't threatened is like 99% of what people catch? What is it? What are the... <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure why the banded kokopo isn't threatened. It might be because it's a, a good climber. It's one of the bigger fish. Um, but yeah, it's... Yeah, not sure. <laughs> okay, no, I just wondered, the one that isn't threatened, how much of uh, a catch of white bait would be distributed uh, around these five species? Do you, you get five species in every net? Um, they're really, from what I understand, is they're really hard to tell apart when they're that little. Oh, so I see. Um, it's, it's almost, you'd have to let them grow up in a tank and see what, <laughs> see what they became. Um, but there, there are some scientists that say that inunga make up the majority of the catch. I'm not quite sure. Okay. Uh, well, I suppose the thing to remember, at-risk declining doesn't mean extinct. Neither does threaten mean extinct. But if you're sitting in one of those categories for any length of time, it's only going in that direction. Mm. Yeah, so at-risk declining means it's getting closer towards threatened. And threatened breaks down into three classifications, nationally vulnerable, nationally endangered, nationally critical. And that nationally critical is right before um, you might be endangered. So. You know, our short-jawed kokopo is nationally vulnerable, threatened, and, um, yeah, we're really worried. Okay. Uh, there are regulations around white bait catching what, and sale. What are those regulations? I don't know that there are many regulations about the white bait sale. I know there are regulations around how we fish. So, for example, the size of the net, the time of the day, uh, the season when it opens and closes. Um, there are some regulations around that. But, um, for example, how much we catch, uh, right now there's no catch limit. So, you know, you or I could go down and just, you know, fish the whole three months um, and come out with potentially, I don't know. I've, I've heard rumors, actually, I read in a um, magazine that um, some seasons you might get away with a couple thousand uh, kilos of fish. Now, I don't think um, that's common around the country. Um, that's only in some very plentiful locations. Okay. It must strike uh, any sentient person that if you're catching that many, uh, you, you'd wonder 
uh, how it would be if we weren't catching them. Um, I mean, it's because they're such tiny things, you need a lot of them to do anything. Even one fritter um, for it not to have an impact would be crazy. Yeah, you know what strikes me is um, I've you know heard the stories about uh, some time ago when their white bait was so plentiful that we were using them as fertilizer. Right. And you know those days are long gone. Sure, some people will get out of the three months quite a, a healthy catch, um, but we know the populations are in decline, and um, we just we just you know we've got to take care of them and get them back to a healthy, thriving population. All right, the regulations that are in place now. Were they regular? Obviously, they're there for some, uh, in some way, to preserve the species. Uh, yeah, so I think I understand that um, the size of the net would help indicate that a certain portion of the fish can get through and and go up and 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 make it to maturity so that they can come back, come back down and lay eggs. Um, but you know, I've I've heard stories as well that um, on certain very uh, fruitful runs of, of, of water. I know that um, certain rivers are are kept secret in terms of the best spot for white baiting, but there are a lot of people lined up on the riverbanks, and so I do wonder sometimes, you know, in those really popular spots, if it is possible um, for a large amount of the the white bait to make it through so that they can grow to maturity. Mm. Okay, have the regulations changed much? The uh, time or duration of the season? Uh, not that I understand. No, these regulations have been around for quite some time. Okay. Uh, regardless of the changing status of the species' uh, welfare. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, one thing that strikes me is we, we do have regulations around how white bait are caught, uh, but we don't have a catch limit. As I said, that's really a concern. Another thing that's a concern is actually fish are not uh, defined as animal under the Wildlife Act. So that's another thing that gets them out of having any further protection and i just point out that you know what, the, what, what? no sorry back up don't forget what you're about to say but you just said they're not they're not an animal under the wildlife act under any act they're an animal they're not a plant are they well no but you know in order to endure protection under the wildlife act they would need to be defined as an animal and then that's something that's lacking in that legislation oh good heavens all right pardon me for interrupting but i just wanted to that, that was a fall <laughs> off the seat moment what were you we about to say um what was i about to say i asked you to remember it <laughs> uh, well anyways the yeah. white bait are under a lot of uh, all new zealand freshwater fish are under some serious pressures so we know that yeah. water quality has been of question in the last decades and that has led to a, a serious pressure on our um, new zealand freshwater fish it's not just white bait that are struggling um, and also the quality of habitat has also declined in the sense that uh, wetlands are being drained and um, you know our rivers don't have the riparian margins that they do to provide the shade which is really important for you know these species so the fishing is an extra stress on these creatures and we've really got to think about um, you know if they're doing so poorly their populations are in decline do we really want to be profiting from um, you know endangered species is anyone actually mo is anyone monitoring monitoring the actual fish take? That would maybe a, an indicator over a long period of time about how they're doing. Well, it's um, 
Yeah, so there, there's a database in which those who are fishing can record their catch. Um, it's not a requirement by law, and I think that some people fishing refer, prefer not to give away the secret because that would yeah. potentially indicate where the best spots are. Yeah. Oh, I can hear the, a, a clamor <laughs> from the West Coast right now. You're bloody t taking over our trying to stop us mining bloody forested bird. <laughs> now you're taking away our white bait. You hate our guts. Uh, it's a bad, going to be a bad PR thing to advocate, um, hey, let's leave them alone or, or any. I don't know what forest and bird thinks is the best thing to do, but it's seen as a cultural Kiwi right, and it's the West Coast taking a hit again, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, we, just, we acknowledge that this is a cultural aspect for New Zealand white baiting. Um, but that's why we feel like it's time we had a conversation because, you know, I, I do believe that those who are out there on the West Coast fishing, they want to see these fish return to the, you know, the times when we were getting them by the truckload. And <laughs> I wouldn't recommend putting them as fertilizer, but I'm saying, can we get them back to the place where they're thriving? And I think that most people out there fishing, even on the West Coast, would want that. So, you know, let's have the national conversation. Um, what do we got to do to get these fish populations thriving, not just surviving? Right. So, Forest and Bird, you've obviously thought longer than just a lunch hour over this. What are your rec what do you think is the best procedure to ensure that that happens? Well, we've got to look at the regulations. They're old, they're outdated, and they're not doing enough to protect our fish. That's that's the first. Um we understand that um you know, the conservation minister has indicated earlier this year that they would be looking into um, the white bait regulation. So we, we welcome that, and we look forward to feeding into that process. Um, and we, I mean, we just have a message for those who are out fishing. Really, um, you know, we recommend that you don't take more than you need. And for the rest of us who find it, you know, a tasty treat, um, maybe we'll think twice because we now know that they're, they're not doing well. They're, they're inching towards extinction. And so when we head out to the restaurant, maybe we will not order the white bait fritter on the menu. Yeah. It's put me off, actually. It's, it's, it's actually the look of the how many, how many it takes just to do a little thing, and that kind of makes me recoil a little bit. Mm. Um, but what are, are there any regulations on the sale? Is it just laissez-faire? I know that there's some requirements on the West Coast with regards to licensing uh, for stands, but I'm not sure that there is anything in place for the sale and distribution. I I also have heard that they're you know being sold on Trade Me, for example. Do, we, do New Zealanders a harvest to eat any other at-risk, declining, or threatened species? Well, the long fin eel. Oh yeah. And, uh, and and I think the kura, the crayfish, also. But both of these species have catch limits. So these whitebait fish are unique in that regard that you can take as much as you want. Whitebaiting? See, I mentioned West Coast. The range used to be all over the country, though, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and I, and I believe people are still whitebaiting around the country, yeah, but I think that the most profitable part of the whitebaiting fishery is on the West Coast. Okay. Um, so... It's basically a change in the regulations. You, you aren't advocating something like happened f with uh, the shellfish toy rower. Um, were you in New Zealand when that, you, were you aware of that huge, big um, mollusk 
north. No. Yeah. Um, thousands of people would go out to the beach and dig them up. There was a season, a limited season. And I've been involved in the affair. God, they're just so tasty. Unique tasting um, mollusk, uh, like a huge big pippy. And that stopped. We just don't do it anymore at all. So, mm. and it was seen as a, you know, every year, especially in Northland where I was brought up, it was a thing you did. And now it's a thing we don't. Mm. Maybe so it is. possible. It, I mean, would Forest and Bird, would you like to see maybe, ideally, five-year moratorium, let's see what happens. Can we do without whitebait for five years? Let's see what happens. What, what, how about that? I think it would be a shock to the system, but as I said, I think it would be important for us to have the conversation. You know, I, I think first and foremost, people need to know these fish are in trouble because a lot of people don't. Um, and once they, they do hear that, they start to think, is this what I want? Do, do I want, you know, as a country to be making a profit from something that is possibly not going to be around for my children or grandchildren? All right. Okay. Annabeth Cohen, thank you very much for filling us in on that and Forest and Bird's uh, point of view regarding those species which we know as whitebait, five of them. Uh, Annabeth, freshwater conservation advocate, Forest and Bird, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Graham. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Uh, keep your ears out tomorrow evening, a chat with Steve Kilby of The Church still really really popular and he's a great chat actually we had a good time chatting pre-recorded it um earlier this week frank open i asked him about drugs he says i'm an expert i've given up heroin eight times <laughs> it has been a big part of his life uh and he has a lovely little lash at new zealand and we've got to be big enough to take it for goodness sake this is hilarious a uh, little sample what was it like growing up in Canberra? Bloody yeah, awful. Your... Canberra was like eternally being in New Zealand. Really sterile. Whoa! All right, don't miss it. That'll be tomorrow night. Uh, shall we have a bit of church heading towards the news? Their most famous tune, if you needed reminding, Under the Milky Way. One of their most famous ones and one of their most loved. Uh, the Milk Under the Milky Way tonight. The church. Steve Kilby. Tomorrow evening, 9 30. I got no time for private consultation under the Milky Way tonight. Wish I knew what you were looking for. Might have known what you would find. And it's something.
Church under the Milky Way. Steve Kilby tomorrow night, 9.30. After new sport and weather at 11 o'clock, which is coming at us very quickly, um, we're hitting a shipwreck tail as we add a few that got lost off overboard uh, in a transformation between one web format to another. Uh, so these are unlikely to have been heard uh, by you in a long time. Anyway, uh, what are we looking at? The Empress of Ireland. The Empress of Ireland, a huge ship which was rammed by another one. Uh, you can see the picture on the webpage of what happened to the other one. Uh, what happened to the Empress of Ireland? She went to the bottom. A massive liner and a harrowing tale, as so many of these are, with John McChrystal. That'll be bang straight away after new sport and weather. Good evening. <laughs>